Hello, and welcome to Faculty Feed with me, Dr. Jerry Rabelais, Associate Vice President of Professional and Educational Development at the University of Louisville's Health Sciences Center. With me are my co-hosts, Dr. Stacy Sainer, Director of HSC Professional and Educational Development, and Dr. Laura Weingartner, Director of Research for Health Professions Education. Once a week, we'll come together and use this podcast to bring professional and educational development content to feed your hunger and satisfy your appetite so you can magnify your impact as an educator, clinician, researcher, and academic leader. Welcome, everyone. Today, we're talking with Dr. Olivia Middle, who's Associate Dean for Medical Student Affairs and also soon to be full professor of pediatrics at the University of Louisville School of Medicine and Norton Children's Hospital. Olivia, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Would you tell us about your role at UofL? I oversee the Office of Medical Student Affairs, which essentially is all of the co-curricular processes um, at the School of Medicine. So I oversee financial aid and academic advising, all the programming, so white coat, graduation, awards banquets, um, registration for classes, and a lot of other things that are amazing that I get to do with a very amazing team of professionals in the Student Affairs Office. And I also, my clinical work is as a pediatric hospitalist. So at Norton Children's, I see patients that are admitted to the hospital there. You have been doing projects around human trafficking. I think a lot of people have heard that phrase but may not know what that is. Would you define that for us or describe it? So I think many people immediately think of the Hollywood portrayal of human trafficking, the kidnapped backpacker that's bound up, beaten, forced to work in a brothel um, while their parents are frantically trying to negotiate a ransom or rescue. while that may happen, it's certainly not the majority of cases of human trafficking. Um, essentially, human trafficking is a crime where human beings or traffickers exploit other human beings and make a profit by compelling them to perform either labor or commercial sex acts. It is a multi-billion dollar industry that affects both adults and children worldwide and is really a federal crime as well as a human rights violation. Now, I think a lot of us as academics would probably want to know the legal definition. So I kind of gave you the essential um, definition, but the legal definition involves the action. So it's recruitment, harboring, transporting, or obtaining of a human being by the means of force, fraud, or coercion. And those are necessary for the definition of human trafficking for the purpose of either labor or commercial sex acts. Let's take a very common example here in the United States. We have a runaway teenager who has been in foster care and has been abused and has a history of neglect and abuse. And so this 15-year-old girl is out in the streets by herself. She is confronted by a seemingly kind man who says, you're too pretty to be on the streets. Come with me. I'll help you become a model. I'll help you become become an actress. Stay with me and we'll do this. So this 15-year-old becomes friends with this man, um, maybe even lovers, and in turn, over time with drugs and alcohol and other things, this man would say, why don't you help us out here? You can really earn a lot of money by performing sex acts for for money. So essentially he forces her, or not, 
It can even be a will, she can be a willing participant initially. But many, in many cases like this, um, the, the women are forced to perform sex acts 10, 20 times a day, every day, and over and over. And so this trafficker, some people would call a pimp, um, is, is making money on this person over and over and over on a daily basis. Now, that's the common one. We see that. That's the sexual exploitation. We see labor trafficking as, as well. It doesn't happen as much in the US because we do have a lot of labor laws, especially for children, but it certainly does happen in less regulated markets. Although it's in a lot of markets that you would be surprised, you know, the hotel industry, um, farming certainly, um, in, in nail salons and other salon type activities, massage parlors, where someone, and it could be a, it could be a, a citizen of the US, but also foreign nationals are as well are very vulnerable to this, where they're promised money and a job and a future, but they are forced to start working and um, they'll work in very crowded conditions, maybe even given a place to stay, but again, in crowded conditions, and they're forced to work over and over. A lot of times for the foreign nationals that I mentioned, their paperwork will be taken and they will be forced into debt bondage. And that's one form of, kind of, of trafficking or labor trafficking where essentially they are told, you owe us $2,000 for coming over here it's going to take you six months to pay it off. And then at that six month period, they say, well, you've been living here for free. Mm -hmm. So you're going to need to work another six months until you get your paperwork. And they are stuck in this cycle that's seemingly endless um, where they have to just work for free. So if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, well, why wouldn't you just leave? You know, why, uh, like this 15 year old girl, why wouldn't you just go home or go get a job somewhere else? Just take your stuff and go. Why, why are people unable to leave those situations? So that question is a question that so many people ask, and so many victims have been asked that. And the number one answer is, where was I going to go? Um, and I think that that's certainly a part of it. But we also know that there's a lot of trauma bonding that is formed. And there's a lot of, unfortunately, for some victims, they are bonded to their traffickers. And they are committed, in, in, in their mind, in a committed relationship. and and that is one way that they don't leave. Another reason, because of the, the force and the coercion, people are often threatened or their families are threatened. If you don't do this, then I'll go get your sister. So you were talking about this um, from the role of a hospitalist. Yes. So how did you become involved in this type of work? Why is it relevant to your role as a healthcare provider? So when I was an early attending, I think it was probably my second year of being an attending here at UofL, I went to a pediatric grand rounds where Gretchen Hunt, who works with victims, and she was working in the, um, I believe at the time, a, um, the, the, cat, the Kentucky cabinet um, in Andy Bashir's office, um, and she's an attorney, along with a representative who I don't remember anymore, but is from Catholic Charities, came and delivered a grand rounds. So she's an attorney, and she delivered grand rounds on human trafficking, but she delivered it in a way that discussed the health consequences of human trafficking. So in that talk, she not only discussed the health consequences that you would expect, so 
you know, certainly STIs, trauma, um, and, and other things like along those lines, drug use and abuse, but also neglect of illnesses, chronic illnesses that are exacerbated through not getting care, um, a lot of mental health concerns and um, downstream effects of those mental health concerns. And she talked about the incidents um, even in Kentucky and in our, among our children in Kentucky. And I still very vividly remember the feeling in the pit of my stomach as I listened to this Grand Rounds. And I thought back to the patients that I had missed. So I did residency in Chicago. I did an extra year as a chief resident. And then I came here as an attending and I had never heard of this. This was something that happened in other countries. This was not something that happened in the US, much less Kentucky. <laughs> and I just knew that if I had missed it, given my run-of-the-mill all-American training that my colleagues were missing it too and I was just like if any of you as, as clinicians who are listening have ever missed something you know how much that affects you and how much you go forward with that being on your radar every time you you see another patient so I um, went forward with that um, just kind of a new resolve to improve my understanding of it and also to help others. And I, I really wanted to make sure that medical students, no matter what they were going into, would learn about human trafficking. So you just mentioned that you wanted to make sure that students would be prepared going forward. So how did you work that um, into your role as an educator? Well, it just so happened that about that time, I was working as the clerkship director for pediatric undergraduate education, so the third year of medical students. Um, and so um, Carrie Bonert from the Standardized Patient Office came to me and said, I have a lot of adolescent appearing standardized patients, and I would love to do a communication module about adolescent communication in your pediatrics department. And at that moment, it was kind of a light bulb moment for me. I was like, let's do it. Let's talk about adolescent communication, but in the setting of human trafficking. And so what we did was we worked to basically recreate the scenario that I had had where I missed it. And I was being a good doctor and asking all the right questions but not getting any answers from the patient in my own case and so we we created a similar case for this and so the case essentially started with a teenager who came in with a STI and the red flag scenario that the the patient presented with was no eye contact um, a pretty Cla big classic looking barcode tattoo that we can talk about a little bit more but essentially means that they're for sale mm -hmm. it's more it's not as necessarily as real life as it is kind of portrayed but that is one of the classic signs that people have have talked about then the patient um had a very inconsistent story a story of being that she would answer inconsistently every time somebody asked so we never really expected the students to be like aha yeah. this person's human trafficked 
But to know that in addition to this STI, there's more going on. Is that intimate partner um, violence? Is there something else that this person wants to say? And so we prompted the students to create an environment that was non-judgmental, was open-ended, asking open-ended questions that allowed them to get as much information. And they were basically graded by how much information they got, not by the conclusion that they came to. And so at the end of this session, we had a debriefing. And we said, hey, everyone, this patient is a victim of human trafficking. Do you know what human trafficking is? And they were all like, no (laughs) or yes i've heard of it or what is this and so we would sit and they would they we uh, created a module like a training module that they could do asynchronously and um and learn more about human trafficking and then we just had like a a little survey at the end to ask some questions about it and so that was something that we started with the medical students it has since kind of dissolved in the medical schools but it's in the in the clinical or the clerkship, but it's taken on a lot of new, um, gosh, but it's taken on a new a new life in a lot of other ways. So we've actually shared this with other schools outside of U of L. Um, for one, in Florida, um, we've also shared this with the nursing school. We've talked about it with pharmacy, um, and we've also um, started working on newer ways to develop higher quality educational materials to deliver this to healthcare workers and practitioners. I would imagine that this is not a topic that is covered widely um, across medical schools. Is there a lot of content out there? Unfortunately, no. And every time we talk about this or every time we take it to a national conference or something, we hear so much feedback like we need more education about this. And there's data to suggest this, too. I mean, there's there have been calls to actions by the um, national committees of pediatrics and obstetrics and gynecology, emergency medicine and and other studies that have basically surveyed physicians and say, how much do you know about human trafficking and are you comfortable taking care of these patients or recognizing the signs and symptoms? And it's overwhelmingly, no, we need more education. So the needs assessment is there and we know this. And so we're really trying to do our best to figure out a way to get the material out there to physicians. So again, it can be on their differential diagnoses. Have you heard from any students that took that training that they've applied uh, any of what they've learned? Actually, yes, and um, that is always so rewarding, by the way. Yes. But I, I will, there's one case in particular, and I don't know a lot of, I don't remember a lot of the specifics of it, but we had a graduate of ours go into emergency medicine, and she came back to let us know that she recognized some things that were off in a patient who had presented to the ER with foot pain but was wearing um, flip-flops in the middle of winter and had a controlling third party in the room that was answering questions for her. And she knew enough to isolate that person and to get more information. And, And the person was a minor, and so she could get help and was mandated to report any concerns with human trafficking in a minor and was able to provide some help with the, with the patient. Tell us about how you're approaching this in, in the roles you have at UofL, not just at the student level. Are you engaging other uh, healthcare learners uh, through your work? 
Yes, so one of the joys that I've had as an educator is going around to Grand Rounds. I've been invited to Grand Rounds at Loyola in Chicago to talk about this, and then other individual um, departments around the university to talk about it. So I've I've really tried to get in at the department level and in the resident education level as well. I give an annual talk to the pediatric residents here in, in, in their part of their advocacy series at U of L. It's kind of, it, there's peaks and valleys as with anything in medicine and with anything in your academic work. And I don't have a time carved out for this, but it's a passion project for sure. And it's something that as I now, we mentioned a little bit earlier, am about to be professor, I can start carving out more time for the things that I really love to do. And I intend to take this further. What are things that providers or other people in the healthcare field should be aware of? The health consequences of human trafficking, whether it's sex trafficking or labor trafficking, are so diverse and all-encompassing. So whether you're an ophthalmologist or an orthopedic surgeon or a, a person at the ICC clinics, you are likely going to be exposed to a patient who is a victim of human trafficking. And so knowing that there are certain things to look for with specifically with human trafficking. So for instance, someone who is um, doesn't have their paperwork. So maybe someone that doesn't speak English um, and is there with a controlling third party. I mentioned that a little bit earlier. So someone else is answering all their questions, even if it's a brother or an aunt, um, and they're answering all the questions for them and not letting the patient answer the question. That would be a red flag. That would be something to think, is this legitimate or not? Um, maybe if they don't have their paperwork, maybe if they're dressed inappropriately for the seasons, maybe if they have evidence of an overuse injury or a chronic injury that that should have been seen weeks ago. Um, other things, chronic illnesses that aren't maintained, so asthma, and that is just been going on and on and on and they don't even have an inhaler. Um, not knowing where they are, you know, if they've been brought here from Indianapolis. You don't have to be transported. I think that's a common misconception with trafficking, just because the word trafficking's in it. But you don't have to be transported from somewhere else, but oftentimes you people are. And so if they don't know what city they're in, or if they have hotel keys, or if they have multiple cell phones. I mentioned earlier tattoos that are used for branding. So the, the trafficker or the pimp will brand their name or their symbol on the patient um, to let them know that they're, they belong to them or let other people know that they belong to them. Um, all of those kinds of things and so many more should alert the practitioner that something's up here. And what I can hope is not that all of a sudden all of all the healthcare physician or all the physicians and healthcare practitioners are now noticing human trafficking and saving everyone that comes through the doors of the ER. What I would hope is that they are able to open up dialogue with the victim and provide a safe space, provide a trusting environment where that person might answer their questions or might begin to develop a little trust, or just learn that they care. Do you um, engage with people who have experienced human trafficking while you're doing, um, while you're teaching about it? Yes, so that's a great question because it's actually recommended from, by 
some of the national organizations that deal with human trafficking, especially in trafficking in the healthcare world, is to not neglect the survivor's voice. Um, and you have to walk that fine line of you don't want to exploit them even further. Um, you don't want to, you know, take them along, and you have to be very sensitive to their wishes. The ones that I have worked with and 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 dealt with have been so unbelievably gracious, and just. And but also love the idea that I'm teaching doctors about how to communicate and how to create a trusting environment and hopefully preventing this from happening or getting so, you know, rescuing, I guess, for lack of a better word. So we always ask our guests to challenge our listeners to do something in the week after they hear this podcast. So what would you urge listeners to do? There's so much information out there, and just what I've talked about today only scratches the surface about what human trafficking is and who the victims are and um, the worldwide prevalence of this, this crime. And I think for anyone who are clinicians, anyone who sees patients, I would challenge them to learn a little bit about about trafficking themselves so that they know enough to include it in their differential, but more importantly, to look at some of the validated tools for communicating with people who who have suspected violence, intimate partner, trafficking, et cetera, and create an environment where you can do trauma-informed communication and open up to that patient and allow that patient to open up to you. No one's going to catch every case that comes across. No one's going to be able to rescue everyone that comes through their doors. But if you create an environment where that patient is comfortable talking to you, who sees you as a trusted person, who can relay some of the information that you want them to relay to you, um, and you can you can give them resources or invite them back for follow-up just to create that space to ask for help, then you have done the job that we need you to do. Olivia, this is such important work. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us about it. And thank you again for doing the work. We'll link the resources in the show notes for people so they can start that process. If you want to up your game or enhance your skills in the academic setting, this is the place to be. As together, we strive to make the University of Louisville a great place to learn, a great place to work, and a great place to discover and connect. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links and additional resources about today's episode. And feel free to contact us at factfeed@louisville.edu. That's F-A-C-F-E-E-D at louisville.edu. Join us next time for more and come hungry.